A long time ago, there was a husband and a wife. The husband loved the wife, cared for her, provided for her, but the wife was restless and dissatisfied. So she began to see another man. She kept it a secret at first, but it wasn't long before she got so deep in her deception that it was difficult to hide her affair. Until one day, she decided to leave her husband altogether. She didn't stay in this new relationship either. She continued to get dissatisfied and look for someone else, going from guy to guy, until she fell into a relationship with a man who coerced her into prostitution. Before, she had been a slave to her own emotions, and now she found herself a slave physically and emotionally to the desires of other men. Then one day, her handler decided that she was perhaps too old or too damaged to make a decent profit, and so he put her up for sale. We don't know exactly how he did this, but I imagine that he put her up for auction. She stood on the auction block with nothing to call her own, with no freedom to choose whose hands she might fall into. And as the people began to bid for her, she heard shouted out again and again what they thought she was worth, and her heart began to sink. But then she heard a familiar voice in the crowd, bidding more and more and more for her. It was her first husband, the man who had first loved and cared for her. He was there and he was determined that no matter the cost, he was going to buy his wife's freedom. He didn't want her to end up as a slave with someone who would misuse her and take advantage of her. He wanted his wife to be free to come back home and be with him. And her husband, who wanted her most, placed the highest bid that day. He saved her from a terrible fate and invited her to live with him as his wife again. Because of the husband's outrageous devotion, he and his wife were reconciled. This is the story of Hosea and Gomer which we find in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament and the Bible. And it's a picture that God uses to illustrate our relationship with him and his attitude towards us. This may not be the first word that you think of when you're considering God's character and who he is, but today we're looking at God, the reconciler. Imagine for a moment that the husband in this story, that's Hosea, is your friend and is coming to you for advice. Weeping, he's telling you how many men she's been with, how, he, how she abandoned him without apology. And now he's consider, considering buying her at auction so she can be his wife again. What would you say? A uh, bad idea. Run for the hills, Hosea. She's totally violated your trust. She's taken advantage of your kindness. She's been completely selfish. And you don't deserve this. You deserve someone who loves you as much as you love them. And yet, despite how painful and humiliating it must have been, Hosea pays the costly price for his wife. This is our story. We are the adulterous wife. God is the faithful husband.
We followed our own emotions instead of following Jesus. We violated his trust. We've taken advantage of his kindness. And we've been selfish. And yet Jesus has remained our reconciler, doing everything necessary to bring us back to him. Though we haven't deserved it, although he deserved much more, Jesus paid the price for us on the cross. This is who our God is. He reconciles. He gives all of himself in order to reconcile broken people and broken situations. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, it says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You can have a relationship with God, a loving, healthy relationship, not because of anything that you've done, but because of what he's done. Gomer didn't earn the right to be in a loving, caring relationship with her husband again. Hosea did it for her. That was the only way it could have happened. She was powerless, standing on the auction block at the mercy of the highest bidder. And so were we. Standing on the auction block at the mercy of the competing powers of this world. And Jesus paid the highest price for you. If you don't know Jesus, this is who he is. This is what he's like, and this is what he's done for you. The longer you've been a Christian, the easier it is to forget this essential truth. We were enemies. We were adulterous wives. And Jesus chose to pay our debts and call us friends. We've looked at several aspects of God's character over this series that we as humans could never emulate. Take the title of the series, Unchanging, for example. God never changes, but we change all the time. Raph spoke to us a few weeks ago about God being all-knowing, but only God is all-knowing. We can never be all-knowing. God as reconciler, however, is different. When we become part of God's family, we become reconcilers like our father. It's our family motto. It's foundational to who we are. So let's look at a longer passage that explains this in a little bit more depth. If you have your Bibles handy, we're going to read now from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 15 to 21. But the words should come up on the screen behind me. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. 
we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God reconciled the world to himself through Jesus, and God entrusted us with his message of reconciliation. This is a message that we don't simply speak aloud, telling others what Jesus has done for us. It's a message that we also demonstrate by how we reconcile with others. In verse 16, it says, From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. That means we are called to see others as God sees them, not according to their mistakes and their sins, but according to the price that God paid to save them. That is their true value, just like it's our true value. When we choose to define others by their failures instead of by Jesus' victory, we not only devalue them, we devalue ourselves and the God who saved us. When we have the right perspective and see someone the way Jesus sees them, it becomes easier to do the difficult work of reconciling with others, even when we feel like they don't deserve it. Reconciliation is a message that we've been asked to demonstrate to a world who isn't seeing it or hearing it anywhere else. We live in a blame culture where people are demonized if they disagree with you, where people will troll through your social media account and dig up past sins from decades ago and punish you for them where you're encouraged to cut toxic people out of your life or cancel anyone who doesn't ascribe to your particular moral code. Our world wants us to fixate on how we've been wronged. But as Christians, we fixate not on what others have done to us, but on what Jesus has done for us. Robert Smalls, was born a slave on Beaufort Island off the coast of South Carolina in the US. When he was 22, the states erupted in civil war and his owner took him to work for the Confederate Navy who were fighting for the right to keep him and other black men and women enslaved. Robert worked on the planter, a steamship that delivered men and supplies along the coast until one night when Robert Smalls and the seven other black men who worked with him on the ship decided to take the ship and escape. With Robert Smalls whistling the codes and disguised as the captain, the planter made it past two Confederate forts. They sailed up to the safety of a Union blockade just offshore, and the officers, seeing an enemy ship approach, lowered their guns and pointed it at the ship until they saw the white flag of surrender and the black men and women dancing and shouting on board. Robert Smalls then turned all of his knowledge of the Confederate Navy against them, and he became one of the Union's greatest assets. He was given formal command of the planter and given a rank and a pension. He was even a member of a delegation to Washington, D.C., where he argued with Abraham Lincoln for freeing and arming slaves to help fight in the war. After the war was won, 
Robert Smalls returned home to Beaufort Island, where his wife and children and his mother were waiting. On Beaufort Island, he had been born a slave, and his mother had been born a slave in a cabin behind his master's house. And then he bought that house, bought the whole plantation. He learned to read. He founded the first public school in South Carolina. He negotiated for better working conditions and fair labor practices for former slaves. He was elected to the state legislature, and he served five terms in the US Congress. He became one of the most powerful and effective black legislators of the 19th century. One day during this time, an old white woman walked up the long path to the small's house. The path flanked on both sides by huge oak trees draped in Spanish moss. She walked past the field where slaves used to work that was now overgrown with wildflowers. She walked up the steps to the house and the family greeted her and they could see that something was wrong. She had dementia. Robert Smalls was the one to recognize her first. She was the wife of the slave master who once owned him. Her husband had died long ago and she returned to the place that she thought was home. So Robert Smalls and his family stood before this woman now owners of the place where they had once been owned. They stood in front of someone who saw them as property, as less than human. And Robert Smalls and his family took her in and cared for her until she died. This is the kind of reconciliation that our Father calls us to. We are who we are because Jesus forgave us And it's important to him that we extend this kindness to others. This is so foundational that when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in what we now call the Lord's Prayer, he includes forgive our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. And in a parable in Matthew 18, Jesus teaches, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? For Christians, reconciliation isn't about who's right and who's wrong. It's about the fact that Jesus is right and we were wrong. At this moment, for many of you, I imagine some names might be coming into your head as the Holy Spirit prompts you to forgive and reconcile with someone. Maybe it's a friend or a colleague, a family member, spouse, someone in church. Even preparing this message, God prompted me to reach out to someone who I realized that I still had some resentment and bitterness towards. I thought that I had already forgiven them, but I could tell whenever I'd speak to Chris about this person that my attitude towards them was still tinged with resentment. This was for something that happened years ago back when I was at college. So I prayed And then I sent a message, which I'm sure seemed totally random and out of the blue for this person. (laughs) But immediately I felt lighter and freer. 
Now I know that if our relationship wasn't as close as it once was, it'll be because of the physical distance between us rather than my hardness of heart. And that's a much more peaceful place to be. I know it can be uncomfortable, but don't ignore what Jesus might be saying to you. It grieves him when he sees you carrying around burdens that he hasn't asked you to shoulder. In Ephesians 4, it says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Jesus wants you to be free from the burdens of anger and bitterness. They will weigh you down and rob you of joy, and they grieve the God who loves you and saved you. For those of you now thinking of someone who maybe you need to reconcile with, the very next natural question is, how do I do that? What now? And this is something you can discuss maybe in more detail with your small groups or with some friends from church, but I'll mention just a couple of practical tips in scripture that can help us. Number one, sort grievances quickly. This doesn't mean we jump in and say whatever comes into our head when we're feeling really stirred up and emotional. Remember, the fruits of the Spirit include patience, gentleness, and self-control. But there is clearly an urgency to deal with conflict quickly instead of letting it fester. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us that if you go to the altar to leave a gift to God and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Of course, this doesn't mean you can't pray about a difficult conversation before you enter into it or that you have to avoid God's presence if you're in conflict with someone. But Jesus is impressing upon you the importance of reconciling with others quickly. The longer you put it off, the harder it will be to do and to do it well. Number two, speak directly to the person you have a grievance with first. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 16, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if you're anything like me, then your instinct, if you're hurt, is not to do this. It's to seek out someone who hasn't annoyed you, vent all of your frustrations to them so that you can feel like they're on your side and they can make you feel like you're right and the other person is wrong. And this might make you feel better for a short time, but it further damages the relationship when our aim should be to repair it. There was a newlywed couple, let's call them Jim and Lucy, and it was approaching Lucy's birthday. In Lucy's family, birthdays were a huge deal. Act 
activities and gifts wrapped and cake. And Lucy comes into the kitchen on her first birthday as a married woman, and she is so excited to see what Jim has planned for her. And she walks in, and Jim's there, and he reaches on top of the fridge and grabs a Tesco bag and hands it to her and says, oh, happy birthday. And inside are two unwrapped gifts, which were probably bought from Tesco. <laughs> Lucy is devastated. She feels like her husband doesn't love her, but she doesn't say anything. For Jim, growing up, his family didn't have much money, and they never gave gifts on birthdays. In Jim's mind, getting his wife anything at all was a lavish gesture of his love and devotion for her. And he was hurt when she seemed so unappreciative of this gesture that he'd done. But he doesn't say anything. If they had spoken to one another quickly about their hurts, they probably could have sorted this misunderstanding or at least started to recognize the other person's point of view. Instead, in silence, their resentment grew. Other little hurts piled onto other little hurts. Until over the coming years, the issues in their relationship were much more difficult to untangle. At this point, they could have maybe gotten someone else involved to help them rebuild a counselor or a trusted friend or maybe a church leader. But instead, they buried the issues. They moaned about their spouse to friends and family until eventually the marriage sadly ended in divorce. Talk about issues quickly. Talk about the issue with the person concerned directly and if you need to, to repair the relationship, get someone else involved. When we follow Jesus' advice about how to resolve conflict with one another, we can avoid so much hurt, and we can even start to rebuild relationships that seem hopeless. For some of you, I'm aware this topic might be quite painful, because you've tried the hard work of reconciling with someone. You've had difficult conversation after difficult conversation. You forgave, you loved, you apologized for things that probably weren't your fault. You tried and tried, but they hardened their heart and chose to walk away. It can be so painful when you've sacrificed so much and you see that the other person isn't doing that for you. But Jesus is. Jesus sees your pain. And not only that, but Jesus experiences your pain. He knows the rejection you feel because he felt it on the cross. He knows what it's like to have harsh words said to you or about you. He knows what it's like to sacrifice everything and still the other person won't love you in return. In Jesus, you have a friend who knows your suffering because he walked through it first. And he will never reject you. He went through hell and back to be with you, and he will never leave your side. Jesus asks you to do all you can to reconcile with others, but you can't control whether or not someone else is willing to reconcile with you. For most of us, 
Now is a time to reflect and to ask Jesus, is there someone that I'm not thinking of who I need to reconcile with? And then to listen to what he says and pray for the courage to act. If we're going to take our ministry of reconciliation seriously, then we'll need one another's help and encouragement in this. In the small group notes, I've included some other important verses that you can go over, as well as some tips from Dr. Henry Clouds, a Christian psychologist, about how to have difficult conversations well. In your small groups, I'd encourage you to look at these together, or if you're not meeting, feel free to get a few friends if you want to chat about them. The notes are online, so anyone can just pull them up and get them. For some of you, the person who you've realized you need to reconcile with, the person you've realized that you've maybe misunderstood, is Jesus himself. Perhaps you saw him as an angry tyrant instead of the loving God we've been looking at today. Maybe you're thinking, what I thought about Jesus seems like it might be wrong. If you'd like to find the truth, to get to know who Jesus really is, then we would love to help you on that journey. Please speak to me or one of the leaders or anyone in a welcome vest. There's nothing special about us. We're just easy to find. Or if you're watching online, you can send us an email. We would love to give you a free Bible and tell you about some other ways you can explore who Jesus is. Now as we sing, we're going to begin where we started, focusing on God, the reconciler. Because our reconciliation with others has to start here, with the God who first reconciled with us. Take a moment as we sing to thank God for who he is, for what he's done, that outrageous love, that outrageous reconciliation, and allow him to speak to you about your own situation. Mm-hmm.